We are resuming our studies in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit as He's worked through the lives of the Apostles. And we've come to a, a, a very, very fascinating and, and really engaging passage of Scripture and account of events that are taking place that I think have specific application for you and I. I want to make sure, of course, that we bridge the historical distance, that we come back and place ourselves in that setting. But have you ever been persecuted? What do you think of when you think of the word persecution? The church has historically faced all kinds of persecution. We've had, of course, everything from social ostracization, where we've been kind of shunned from society, But in the early church, we have what now is the very first real physical persecution of a brand new church that's been established. We live in a culture that is increasingly uh, anti-God or increasingly anti-truth, God's eternal truth. And the more you and I stand for truth and the more you and I live and walk in God's truth, we're going to find ourselves in sometimes precarious situations. How do Christians live standing firm holding tight to the Word of God, living obedient to Him in the midst of a world that does not, that rejects Him. And so that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. By studying this passage of Scripture, I would ask you again to join with me as we simply ask the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. Father, thank you again for the privilege that we have to be here, for the freedom that we enjoy and the right to assemble granted to us by this, by our country and by our, of course, city and state. Father, we're grateful. We don't want to take this uh, for granted. We want to acknowledge the grace that you're bestowing upon us. And yet we know throughout history there have been times when just simply naming the name of Christ, simply making the statement, Jesus is Lord, has been enough to send people to prison, to cost people their homes and their possessions, to even cost people their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And Father, we we understand that we are experiencing in this country and in this location and in this place a great deal of just graciousness. That we get to worship, we get to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ publicly and without fear of, of reprisal. And yet we also know that just looking at history and looking at the promise of your word, there are challenges that we face when we stand for you. The world that hated you will hate those who represent you as well. And so I pray that you'll equip us, that you'll prepare us, that you will speak to us, that we will learn from the example of these men that we're studying this morning, and that you will encourage us, help us to talk about Jesus faithfully and consistently, to talk about Jesus' power, to proclaim Jesus' grace, and to talk about Jesus with courage. We trust you to do so. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. As Stephen read our text this morning, I want to kind of make sure that we're very aware of the setting that is taking place. You guys will remember that the church has been established. All of a sudden at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power and Peter and the apostles were able to speak in languages that they had not studied. And people heard the gospel. And Peter preached. He brought that first message that we saw recorded in Acts chapter 2 and some 3,000 people surrendered and they came in in giving their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and the church was established what a great day 
chapter 4, you know, they got these people assembling in uh, chapter 3. And then they don't have any place to assemble. They have no church building. And this is a Jewish population. And these are Jews who have now recognized that God's promised Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He was crucified and he was resurrected. And this is the Messiah. So they are still, of course, Jewish people accustomed to worshiping in the temple. But now they're Jews who have recognized Jesus as Messiah. Where are they going to worship? Well, they continue to go to the temple. As a matter of fact, many of them are continuing the regular temple practices. Again, this is right after. This is the initial establishment of the church. We find in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John are on the way to the temple. There's a man outside the gate, beautiful, massive, beautiful gates. And they're called the beautiful gates. And he is lame. And his only source of income is to beg and to call for alms. And we see how that Peter and John got his attention. And they told him, silver and gold we don't have. But what we have, we'll give to you. And as a display of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And immediately, through God's power, through the power of Jesus Christ, through these men who were obedient, as a testimony to everyone there that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and that Jesus still lives, this man was completely healed. It was like a miracle of creation. He didn't have to go to rehab therapy. It wasn't a process. He was immediately healed. Didn't even have to learn how to walk. He was able immediately to walk and to run and to leap. You think he was excited? Think he was pretty joyous and overcome? What a miracle. Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, can you Im- I like it when I get over a cold. And here's a man who has been lame since birth. He's now over 40 years old. And he's been outside this temple gate. And people have walked past him and walked past him day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And his probably only expectation was, I want enough alms, enough generosity to make sure that I'm clothed, to make sure that I'm fed, to make sure that I have a a place to live. And God breaks in through these apostles and they do beyond his expectations, significantly beyond his expectations. And he's made, made well. Well, everybody knows this guy. I would, imagine, I would imagine he was a talker. Hey, bud, got a dime? I don't think it went that way. I think he engaged with the people. I think he saw the same people week after week and month after month. He saw the same faces. He knew them by name. And he knew the ones that would give and he knew the ones that wouldn't give. But they all recognized him. He was not a stranger. Three o'clock in the afternoon was when they would have the afternoons or the evening sacrifices. It was a worship time. And out on the other side of the gates, beautiful, was this massive uh, platform, this massive uh, area, open wide open, where thousands of people could and would gather for prayer as they prepared to pray and as they prepared to have the priest conduct the sacrifices in the temple. And all of a sudden, here's this guy, and i got to tell you, he's not whispering, all right? He's shouting, and he's leaping. And the people around see it, and they, all of a sudden, the word just starts to spread. Have you ever been in a place where it starts as a murmur, and it just kind of ro- rolls out? And the word spreads, and people come, come look, come see. And this guy, he's not just running around in circles. He's clinging to Peter and John. I love the, the terminology there. He grabs hold of these guys. And, of course, 
Peter and John see it as an opportunity to again proclaim the good news. Uh, to again, the crowd is gathered and, and, and we have a, a, a second sermon. We have a, a, a recorded a synopsis of the sermon that, that Peter preaches to the people. And there are literally thousands of them. As a matter of fact, we find out that in chapter 4, what we're going to look at today, we find out that he's preaching to a crowd. We don't know how many thousands, but it's more than 5,000 because 5,000 men, and this is not 5,000 of the mankind present. This is not anthropos. This is andros. This is 5,000 males as opposed to females respond to the message. But we haven't got into the inner court yet. This is the court where there are men and there are women and there are children. And it's even a court where Gentiles are permitted to hear at least what is taking place. And so in this courtyard, 5,000 males, and this just doesn't even count the females and the others who, who would have been a part of this. But 5,000 respond. So there are far more than that there. It's a big deal. Now the Jewish leaders, a little bit about the temple in Jerusalem, the temple was ruled, was led by the Jewish group called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were kind of their day of our contemporary theological liberals. They believed in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So the first five books of the Bible, they said, that's God's word. But everything else... The, the history books, the poetry, the Psalms, the other prophecies. They said, oh, that, that's just kind of commentary on those first five books. So they, did, they didn't even embrace the whole Old Testament as the Word of God. Not only that, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, nobody's raised from the dead. There's no resurrection. Now, there is resurrection referred to. But there's no resurrection in those. So they said, there's no resurrection. They just didn't believe that you would die and then be resurrected. They, didn't, they just did not believe in a resurrection period. Now the Sadducees were also, and we'll get a little bit more into this, they were led by the high priest. Now, uh, when Stephen read the names a little while ago, did any of them sound familiar? The first name was Annas. You guys remember him? You remember when Jesus was... was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, where did they take him? The first place they took him was to Annas, the high priest. Now, he's actually not the serving high priest. He's the recently retired. He's the, uh, uh, what do you call somebody who used to be in the role and now he's honorarily in the role? There's a word for that. Emeritus. He's the high priest emeritus. And so he still goes, like our president, who is no longer president, we still call him Mr. President. He still goes by the title high priest. Now, the seating high priest is appointed by Rome. He's not even voted on by the Jews, and it's not a, a, a natural succession. He's appointed by Rome, and so there's some compromise there, or at least some sort of relationship with, with Rome. Well, his name is Caiaphas, and Caiaphas married Annas' daughter, so he's his son-in-law. Now, later we'll see when these guys are brought before the Sanhedrin, they're also brought before Jonathan and, and Alexander, or John and Alexander. Those are Caiaphas' brothers. And so we have kind of a ruling elite of what's taking place here. These guys are responsible for the temple. But not only that, you've got the priests. Now, there are 24 groups or 24 courses of priests who all over the country will come in and they will serve their period of time, two weeks typically, where they live in Jerusalem and they conduct the sacrifices and they take care of the, the priestly duties. They, they're hands-on. We take and we do this. But then you also have the temple guard. There's a police force in the temple. 
The Romans require order. Now, they're pretty flexible. You want to be a Jew, you can be a a Jew under the control of Rome. You want to be something else, you can be something else under the control of Rome. But you can't be disorderly. You can't foment rebellion. You You can't cause confusion in the streets. They're very strict about that. So the Jews had a temple guard. When you look at Acts chapter 4... The very first passage is just when, when Peter and John are speaking to the people, the priests, those who are serving in the temple, the captain of the temple, that's the chief of police, that's the temple guard, and the Sadducees, this is the group of people who are over the temple, came upon them, and verse 2 says, greatly annoyed. Now, when I mentioned this last week, I said, how many of you ever been accused of being annoying? Have you ever been accused of being annoying? Have you ever found somebody that was annoying? You know people that are annoying. This word is far more than that, actually. They were not only just annoyed. It's not like, oh, those people. I wish they'd just be quiet. They're just disrupting everything. It it, it goes well beyond it. They were greatly disturbed. It's probably a better translation than it is the New King James Version translation of this passage. It's a word in Greek that's only used twice in the whole Bible. It's used here, and it's used in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, where you have the young woman who is possessed by a demon, and and she comes to Paul, and she begins to harangue Paul. You guys remember that account? And Paul sees this young woman who is possessed by a demon, and he is greatly disturbed. These guys are are really irritated. Now, why would they be irritated? Can you figure this out? Why, Why would they be so upset? Well, what does the text say? They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. Who were the teachers of the people? Interact with me a little bit. The priests were the teachers. The rabbis, the priests, the scribes. They were the priests. And they did it. They were the teachers. And they did it in the temple. Now here's Peter and John. They didn't ask for permission. They didn't fill out a green sheet. They didn't didn't go through whatever process or calendar request. They didn't get an approval process. They just stood up and they began to preach. So first thing, they're they're... What right do these people have to teach? But what are they teaching? Not only that they're teaching, but what they're teaching. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus. Let's just stop right there. They're preaching Jesus. They're talking about people about Jesus being the Messiah. I'll guarantee you what they're teaching and preaching is what they've already been preaching and teaching. We saw recorded in Acts chapter 3. We saw recorded in Acts chapter 2. Looking back at the Old Testament. Of the prophecies about the Messiah. And applying it to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders and the temple leaders who just delivered Jesus over to Pilate. And so they're teaching, they're teaching Jesus. And what are they teaching? That in Jesus there's the resurrection from the dead. Now if you're a Sadducee, that's the last straw. You're not only teaching when you shouldn't be teaching. You're not only promoting the name of Jesus and making much of the name of Jesus who we just delivered to be killed. Now you're saying that He's resurrected from the dead and in Him is resurrection power. And we don't believe in the resurrection. We've got to do something about this. We've got to shut them guys up. Do you understand what, what is taking place dynamically? Are you with me? Because Peter and John preaching, we see great things. We see 5,000 and more, maybe twice that, maybe three times that, come to believe. But it costs Peter and John. Because they went, and the Bible says in this translation, they laid hands on them or they arrested them. They grabbed them. And they dragged them 
and they put them into jail. Now, I do want to make one point here. What time were they going to the temple? You remember what time of day was it? Three o'clock in the afternoon. They healed this man. The crowd comes and they begin to preach. And now the leaders of the temple come and grab them, take him to jail. But they just put him in jail overnight because it's already dark. The day's done. So this was probably a three or four hour sermon. Sound good, right? That, that's a good thing. All right. Just wanted to point that out. It's been a long time since I preached a three or four hour sermon. But what, what a great result for the people. But what about the results for Peter and John and others? When you and I proclaim the name of Jesus, and when we speak the truth about Jesus, we need to be prepared to be rejected by some. And if you're taking notes, that's where you start on your outline. We'll go through this pretty quick because we're covering a big passage and we're kind of skipping along and hitting the highlights. But you need to be prepared to be rejected by some. If we live godly in this world, we can expect to face persecution. Now this persecution for us may not be imprisonment. It may simply be scorn. It may be a loss of opportunities in the workplace. It may be a loss of friends. It may be being fired from your job. It may be simply people identifying you as one of those peculiar people or one of those religious nuts and putting you in some sort of, uh, of identity and separating themselves from you. But persecution can be more than that. Persecution can be overt and physical. It can be being thrown in jail and being beaten, having your property seized, Hebrews chapter 10, having churches torn down, which we have seen in this world in these days, and even being put to death, sometimes in very horrible ways. And I'm not going to take time this morning to talk to you about Nero and Domitian and Diocletian and the first 300 years of persecution in the church. You ought to study that. You ought to know that. I would love to teach a class on, on, on the persecution of Christians throughout history. It is, it is a fascinating study, and I believe it will encourage your faith. We're not going to take time to talk about that day. I want to put this in the context of where we live. When you stand up for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you something. And it's going to cost you. And if, and if you're not experiencing any of that, and you never have experienced any of that, then you need to come back and make sure that you are accurately representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus promised in John chapter 15, He says, when the world hates you, you need to know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, speaking to His disciples, in the upper room discourses shortly, this is the Thursday before He's crucified on Friday. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. You need to remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they keep my word, if they follow me, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me when we represent christ appropriately there's going to be pushback from some people some people will believe some people will respond some people will follow some people will become your brothers and sisters for life and for eternity but some people will not this goes beyond simply having a difference of opinion yeah it is annoying when you share the gospel with someone 
and you tell them your life has not, is not right, it's wrong, that you need something you don't have. There is a fleshly aversion to the gospel when it identifies that you're really not the center of your life. You're not designed to be the center of, of your life. You're not, it's not all about you. You aren't to be living for pleasure or pursuing personal ambition or living motivated simply by your hungers and letting your belly be your God. It is more than that. It is, a, but there is more than that. It is more than natural aversion. There's a spiritual taking place. You guys remember Ephesians chapter six? For we wrestle not against. Out loud, really loud. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers and authorities. We. It is a spiritual warfare that we are gazed. Engaged in against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me let me just ask you a question in our culture, North American culture, even in the South, but certainly in 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 the United States of America. We talk about rules and expectations societally for religious groups. But who gets picked on the worst? Christians, have you, know, have you noticed that? Oh, this group will get, even when we were doing COVID-19 restrictions across the United States of America, this group, here's the principle, you have to do this, you have to do that, don't assemble in groups, but who were the churches, particularly ones in the news that were shut down while there were mosques and while there were other groups that were not even addressed? Who were the ones that, that, that from, it, the Christians, it seemed, to get, I'll say picked on. That seems to be enforced more with Christianity while others largely get a pass. Paul, like few others, faced persecution and this consistently because his witness was consistent. He was engaged in, in spiritual warfare. And we need to recognize that the, the, the abhorrence that people have and I will say secular people in some policy have is a reaction to the 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 spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And we need to recognize that it is a battle, that it is a spiritual battle. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you in the ESV, and then I want to follow it up by reading it in the J.B. Phillips translation, just to kind of bring it to the vernacular and bring it home. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5 through 5 in the ESV, for though we walk in the flesh, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. I'm in a body, you're in a body, but this is, you're not the enemy. This is, this is not a fleshly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to de destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Now, that is a tremendous passage. And just to kind of, again, put it more in common language, using the J.B. Phillips translation, listen to it, as I, or let's read it together. I believe it's on the screen. The truth is that, Paul says, although, of course, we lead normal human lives, the battle we're fighting is on a spiritual level. The very weapons we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. Our battle, get this sentence, is to bring down every deceptive fantasy 
and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. We even fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. Won't you understand that when we are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual battle. And sometimes the response to our simply being faithful to God and faithful to the teachings of Christ and walking after the Spirit is, dis, is, is, is all out of proportion. Disproportionately harsh because of the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. When you speak the truth because you've experienced it, you know it, you live in it, you are not only running the risk of natural direction, natural rejection, you are engaging in spiritual warfare, you are encroaching upon the enemy's territories. And he doesn't like it. Remember what Jesus said, I will build my church and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That assumes, gates are not offensive weapons, they're defensive weapons. And as we, li- our defensive uh, fortresses as we as we live in obedience to christ as we talk about jesus the title of this series let's talk about jesus as we talk about jesus who he is and what he's done and 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 and, and his grace and his power and his ability to change lives and that he's coming back one day and we're all going to stand before him as we talk about jesus we are encroaching upon the enemy's territory and he's not going to like it and so we are engaged in spiritual warfare And so we need to prepare to be rejected by some. But not all. 5,000 men that day counted. They counted 5,000 men. So there were more. But those are the ones who had their lives changed that responded in repentance and faith. Now, when Peter and John got arrested, what did they do? Did they tell the guys to go get their swords and come back to the temple and set them free? Did they do some sort of insurrection, rebellion. We can't let this stand. That is not what they did. That is not what they did at this time. And so when we are facing whatever persecution or whatever rejection that we face as as those who proclaim the name of Christ, how are we supposed to respond? I'm going to just kind of put this out there. I think this is important that we note. Verse 3 says they arrested them. They put them in custody till the next day. It was already evening. Verse 5 says the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired by what power and name did you do this. So locked up overnight, brought to stand before the same place that Jesus had stood before just a, a month and a half before now. I would imagine it's kind of an intimidating spot. But they, there's, no, there's no rebellion here. There's no uh, self-vindication. Uh, how could two Galilean fishermen have an audience with this group of people? Because of the persecution. And they submitted to the persecution. We have no record of even their complaining. And what we have is a principle that said, by the way, it runs throughout the Scriptures. And it's hard. It's probably the hardest thing, one of the hardest things we have to do when we face persecution. Because when somebody hits you, what is your natural desire? What, what is your natural response? If somebody walked up to you and just popped you on the back of the head, what, what would your natural response be? Hit them right back. This one's iron, this one's steel. This won't get you, this one will. <laughs> kind of the stuff I was raised with. Uh, turn the other cheek? Mm, not so much. I, I had a friend who who was fairly physically active and certainly engaged in setting wrongs right in his mindset. I went to college with him. 
I, some of you might know him. I'm not going to mention his name. But I called him out one time by saying, the Bible says, don't take your own vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And he said, yes, and I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm going to take care of the vengeance component of this. But what does the scripture have to say about those who persecute us? How are we to respond? Do you know? Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That means to speak good to them. Not, not curse them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 says, We labor working with our hands. When we are reviled, this is the Apostle Paul saying, When we are reviled, when they unload on us, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we continue to entreat. We have become and are still like the least of the world, the refuse of all things. How did Jesus respond when persecuted? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When He, Jesus, was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to the One, to Him who judges justly. And so they submitted. You need to expect that some people are going to reject. Not all, but some. They're going to reject you. And that there are consequences. And, quite frankly, you need to submit to that you don't this is not self-justification or self-vindication but what do you do you remain true to the gospel message you got the setting the sanhedrin the sadducees the temple police there's caiaphas the first place that they carried jesus from the garden of gethsemane or annas and caiaphas there's a high priestly family. These are the people who put Jesus to death. There is a prison that the Jews can assign people to in a Roman-controlled country. And they can lock them up and put them in jail. Not only holding... You know what they can do? They can immediately execute judgment. They can give lashes. You guys know what public lashes or public beatings are? Again... We would, we would only know this from a historical mindset or from traveling to some other countries, but I don't know how much it's done even in other countries now. But there was a time when, you, when they could simply say, you've broken the law, you're disturbing the peace. The punishment is, in this setting, up to 39 lashes. Not 40, 40 is too much, but you can go up to 39. And they would actually bind you to a post, and they would take a whip and or a cane. You guys ever heard of a caning, a public caning? They would take it and they would beat you. Come on, a whipping. This is well beyond a whipping. And they beat him. And we find that they punish Peter and John and the other disciples by beating them and by arresting them. And so they have the power to do that. Peter and John know that they have the power to do that. They're standing in front of this group of people, and this group of people comes and says, By what name? In whose authority are you doing this? Why? Because it's our temple. We're the teachers here. We're the leaders here. It's our authority that you're encroaching upon. By what name? Now, what would you do? How would you respond? Would you be tempted to compromise the message? Well, you know, we were just walking down the street. 
And uh, would, you be, would you be tempted to compromise the message rather than being held accountable and facing what might come? I love this. I love this passage of Scripture. I think of Peter and John standing there and I don't see them as cowering. I don't see them with their knees knocking, maybe sweating a little bit, okay? Maybe thinking through the ramifications of what they are about to say. But they are given the introduction by saying, by what power, what name do you do this? Peter responded, but before he responded, we have this description. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Peter knew he was out of his league. This is beyond me. I don't know what to say. I don't have the courage to stand here and proclaim boldly. I get tongue-tied. I put my foot in my mouth. I'm well known for it. Father, Holy Spirit, fill me. Speak through me. Give me the words to say. Give me the courage and the conviction to be able to say it. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means simply to no longer be dependent upon your own abilities, capabilities, or devices, but to make yourself totally reliant upon the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? You know what that means, right? And so Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Says, rulers of the people and elders... If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. He's well. He's been healed. Now, just in case there's any confusion, this Jesus was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And He has become the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation. But there is salvation in no other name. And no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. Whereby we must be saved. (laughs) He speaks with courage. And he speaks with truth. He doesn't waffle. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't make it more amenable. He doesn't make it it feel better. Matter of fact, if I knew that you were sitting in judgment over me, I might be a little ingratiating. My, you look nice today. You know, your honor, you are so smart and you're so wise. And I'm just here because yeah, I really don't have a choice. Jesus called me to do this and I'm just being obedient. And surely we can, you know, he is the Messiah. He is the Jewish Messiah. And, and you know, and, and I can hold to the truth and kind of hold to the truth. But, but I can try to change the content enough so that it goes easier on me or so that people aren't offended or so they don't hurt their feelings so bad or so that they don't reject me out of hand. But they don't do that. Get this. They don't do that. They do not compromise the message. They stay true to the gospel, the content. 
And so if you're taking notes, that's the, that's the point here. They don't change the heart of the message. They stay true to the gospel, the content of the message. And the message is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the only way to be saved. So they, they, they made sure that they didn't even change the exclusivity of the message. But there's more, I think, to it than that. This Jesus whom you killed. This Jesus, the cornerstone that you, the builders, rejected. Why? It sounds like he's trying to make them mad, doesn't it? It sounds like he's just kind of poking and probing. Just kind of... You know, we get back to annoying. So he's kind of twisting, not only sticking in the knife, but twisting with what he's saying. Why? Why would he do that? Again, there's no malice. I don't believe that there's any malice in this message. As a matter of fact, I believe there's a great deal of grace in this message. But Peter knows and John knows. And folks, you ought to know. You ought to know. That unless a person acknowledges their guilt before a holy God and responds in repentance and faith, they aren't saved. You don't add Jesus to what you're doing, and you don't change the message enough so that we can just make a twist here, a twist there, and how we think and what we believe, and I'll start reading the Bible, and I'll start going to church, and all of a sudden I'm saved. No, it is repentance, metanoia. It is epistrecho. It is turning around and going the way. It is going the other way. It is going all the way to Jesus. It is placing your faith in Jesus alone. It is acknowledging your need. And He knows it. And He's not giving them any ground to waffle here. Only Jesus. Only by coming to Him completely. Only by acknowledging that you put to death the Messiah. That you rejected the cornerstone. There is salvation. Just stop there. There is salvation. Man, there's grace. There is grace. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. The promised Messiah to the Jewish leaders. The promised Messiah. The one you've been looking for. He's here. And though you say there is no resurrection, He lives. And you want evidence that He lives? Go look at that fella jumping around in the courtyard. For 40 years, he's been lame since he's been born. And through the power of Jesus today, not the power of Jesus before He went to the cross, but the power of the living Jesus who has been resurrected, He has been healed as a testimony to you that the resurrection is real and you need to come to Christ. There is salvation in the name of Jesus. There is no salvation in any other name. That's what it means to stand true. To the content of the message. Well how do you think they responded to that? You read it. Stephen read it. You read it with Stephen when he read it. How do you think they responded? They were like okay. You guys go in the other room. We're going to deliberate. And so they took him out of the room. And you're talking about denial. Here's what they said. A miracle has been done that we cannot deny. In other words, we can't hide this. We can't cover this up. They're not even, they are completely blind to their need for Jesus as Savior. 
Or maybe they know that there's a, they have a need for Jesus to be their Savior, to acknowledge that He is resurrected from the dead, but they're simply refusing to. They've drawn a line in the sand, and they said, no, we are in opposition to this message. No, we're in opposition to this man. No, we're in opposition to these people. We're opposed, and they've closed the door. But they've done a miracle we cannot deny. They're not even questioning the reality of the miracle. They've done a miracle that we cannot deny. So what is our goal now? Our goal is to shut them up. To limit the message. I will tell you that there is a fascinating aspect of this for me. In these days that we're reading about in Acts 3 and 4. They had to be commanded to be quiet. In our days we almost have to be commanded to say anything. We have to be reminded and taught and challenged and encouraged and led by the Spirit regularly to talk about Jesus. They couldn't talk about hardly anything else. And so I pray that you and I, I pray, boy, I pray this for me. I got to tell you, it's been, this has been a tremendous study for me. But I, I have intentionally determined and yielded to the Holy Spirit asking for forgiveness and asking for empowerment. To make Jesus more and more the topic of conversations I have with people who I know don't know Him. Or who I don't know if they know Him or not. Just engaging in conversation. Telling the truth about Jesus. Telling my story. Their story that cannot be denied. Well, they just want to shut Him up. I will tell you that is one of the spiritual warfare battles. That is Satan's strategy. They just want to shut you up. Actually, we talked about the degrees of persecution... When persecution is harsher than those who are persecuted by that, their faith, James chapter 1, when you face various trials, your faith is strengthened, you, you endure, your faith is grown, you can trust God to provide you wisdom as you go through those situations. We see again and again and again how God uses trials to strengthen the faith of His children, and it draws a line, and it takes people who are kind of Christians, but never fully yielded to Christ, so they're social Christians, not regenerated Christians, kind of takes them out of the picture because they're, they're compromised and they move away. And it draws clear lines in the sand between those who are following after Christ and those who are not. I will tell you, one of the bigger... Because you just have to decide, yes or no, I'm willing to go to prison or I'm not. But I'm willing to die or I'm not. I'm willing to lose my house or I'm not. And it becomes abundantly clear. But in a culture like ours where you're just called a nut, you're just a religious nut, you're one of those fundamentalists, aren't you? Oh, you're one of them... Them, them religious people, and yeah, you, you, you feel like you have to go to church. You don't really have to go to church. You feel like you have to do this. You don't really have to do that. And 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 we become subtly drawn into compromise. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it it's it it sneaks up on you. You don't expect it. It just sneaks up on you. And where at, when you first got saved, you could you it was all about Jesus. Now it's you know it's about what it means to be a good person. And 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 it keeps you away from the Word of God. And it allows compromise to approach your life. And we need, to, we need to stand firm in the message of the gospel in our hearts belief of it. But we also need to stand firm in delivering the message. And that's the third point if you're looking for something to put in that last blank. We need to stay true to the gospel in its delivery. In delivering the message of the gospel. We need to keep talking about Jesus. Speaking of keep talking, man, I'd like to go on and on, but I'm not. <laughs> Not this morning, but I do want to, I just want to read something to you, if I can. Well, maybe not. I don't think I brought it with me. There are 15 passages in the book of Acts. 
that maybe you've never heard them back to back. And because they're spread out and they're interspersed among narratives, we kind of lose the sense of the power of what's taking place. It is overwhelming to see the power of Jesus on display through the obedience of His people to stay true to the gospel in content and delivery. It is overwhelming. Listen. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, they were added that day, remember these words, about 3,000 souls. In Acts 2, 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4, 4, in our passage, and many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men, the males that came to be that saved about 5,000. So that's five, eight, day by day. That's not including all the women. We're probably talking to church of fifteen or 20,000 by the time we get to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 5, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, and the disciples were increasing in number. 6, 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9. So the church was being built up and it multiplied. Acts chapter 11. And a great number who believed, a great number, a myriad is the word that's used there, who believed, turned to the Lord. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 13. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is when it leaves Jerusalem, goes to Antioch, and it covers the whole area. Acts chapter 14. And a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. 14.21. On the missionary journey, they preached the gospel to that city, and they made many disciples. Acts chapter 16, second missionary journey. And the church... They were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts chapter 17, as a result of their preaching, many believed. And not just a few of the Greek women of high standing, men as well, or the women as well as the men. Acts chapter 18, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord. When Paul comes back and he preaches there, the ruler of the local synagogue believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians were hearing Paul and they believed and they were saved. Many of them. I want you to. I want you to talk. I want. I want to close this with Holy Spirit math. You guys like math? The power of the Holy Spirit through the obedience of His people, proclaiming the gospel, staying true to the content of the gospel in their lives and in their testimony, through delivery, content, and continuing to preach. The math goes added. Added. Daily added, added, multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. But just as encouragement, it's not, it's, we talk about so much the power of God to save people. That only God can regenerate a lost person. Only God can bring the dead to life. And that is so true. That repentance is required. That is so true. But did you know, according to a Barna study, millennials, and I don't know how many of you guys are millennials, but millennial church millennials, and this is according to a Barna study, and so it's, it's nationwide, that about 52% of churched millennials believe it's wrong to share your testimony and to try to lead people to Christ. 
Because we have been taught what you believe is for you. What I believe is for me. And you can believe what you believe, but you can't tell me that what I believe is right or wrong. And my only response to that is tell that to Peter and John. Tell it to Jesus. We have a duty and a joy and a responsibility to see legitimately lost people saved, guilty people forgiven, people in bondage set free, spiritual bondage, bondage to sin set free. And God has chosen to allow us to be the ambassadors and the messengers of His grace. So will you, with me, talk about Jesus? Father, thank you for the example that we have in Peter and John, for the truth that is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, by how it's applied in this context. And I pray that you'll equip us that we just won't be silent. I will not be silent. I will speak because how can they be saved? They need to hear. They need to hear the word of God. They need a speaker to talk to them about Jesus. And Because I talk about who I love. And because I talk about the things that are important to me. I pray that Jesus will be increasingly important to me. That it be increasingly on my mind. That my mind will be filled with His Word. That I will be like Peter was on that day. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Depending upon your power, your presence. You to give me the words. That we will see lost people saved. I think about the places that we live and the places that we work. I think about West Greenville and the West Greenville community. We've been studying that pretty hard over the last, last month or so. And I think about the people who live there. The people that we come in contact in all the different areas of our life. In our, in our children's ministry, in our student ministry. Father, on our jobs when we go to work. The places that we go to when we go to school. And there are some things that are worth being persecuted for. There are some things that are worth losing friends over. There are some things that are worth running the risk. Things that require courage. And Father, nothing more important, nothing that requires more courage than to name the name of Jesus and to let others know that there is salvation in no other name. Again, Jesus did not come to show us a way. He came to be the way. And so, Father, give us the courage to talk about Jesus this week. In your name I pray. Amen.